Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Amy Nicholson, who writes on film for the New York Times and hosts the podcast Unspooled. Manuel Betancourt is contributing editor at Film Quarterly, and Charles Solomon, who uh, writes on animation for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Transformers Rise of the Beasts, directed by Stephen Capel Jr. Amy, what did you think of the latest Transformers film. Well, we all know Optimus Prime, and now seven films into the franchise, we get to meet Optimus Primal. He is a biomechanical gorilla. He is here with some of his maximal friends. That's what they call this breed of Transformer. There's a robot cheetah, a robot, a robot uh, falcon, a robot rhino. They're all here, and they're here doing just the same old nonsense. Oh no, get the thing, do the thing. The world's going to destroy us. Blah 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 blah. You know how these go. I will say. As a Transformers movie goes, this one, because Stephen Capel Jr. is the director of this, has a different flavor than the previous ones up until Bumblebee. This is a prequel. It's set in 1994, so it's in between Bumblebee and the Shia LaBeouf years. And it's set in Brooklyn, where you have like two actors I really like a lot, Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback. They're playing these like Brooklyn kids. She's a museum curator. He's an ex-vet who works with you know soldering irons or tries to find jobs trying to do anything. And even though it's really leaning into that kind of 90s nostalgia that's everywhere. I really liked it. You got got lots of hip-hop going on on the soundtrack. You got every visual cue you can that's like, Super Mario Brothers, you know that you're in the (laughs) 90s. And that all works as well as it can until then the plot kicks in and everything's just as boring as ever and all the robots are fighting under gray skies on gray backdrops and you're like, what am I doing here? So as a Transformers movie goes, it's a little weird. The plot's a little bust. I believe very strongly that in a prequel you cannot be threatening us with the end of the world. We're all like... That's not going to happen. What are you doing? <laughs> so there's plenty of time just to be like checking out, enjoying the sound design, which I've always loved in a Transformers film. I think the sound design is always incredible. I don't begrudge it a single Oscar nomination. In fact, I kind of wish it would win an Oscar <laughs> nomination for sound at one point. And you get to just think, why does a robot gorilla have fur around its pecs? Is that is that a floor mat? What is that? <laughs> Transformers Rise of the Beasts, Manuel. Amy, you forgot to tell us that they go to Peru and that they like they move from Brooklyn to Peru, which is kind of jarring and also kind of indicative of the sort of like wild swings that the movie takes. Um, I think, you know, Anthony Ramos and Dominic Fishback are fantastic actors, and I was sort of a little sad that they get to be just they're either scared or in awe. And then they're scared and then in awe. And those are the only two sort of notes that they're called to play. And they're such magnetic, charismatic performers um, that I almost wish we got to use them a little bit more. But yeah, I, I found that, you know, if you love a Transformers film, this is, this is you're going to enjoy this Transformers film. Uh, it has all the things that a Transformer film needs and has and has all these like action sequences. And especially at the end, it does get a little bit muddy and a little bit gray and a little bit like it's just clashing metal and clashing metal. And it's hard to sort of keep track. Um, and the other thing that I will say that I did enjoy and that I think it's, it's something that um, this one has that 
it's new is we got a lot of like really great voice work from people like Michelle Yeoh. We have Pete Davidson. Peter Dinklage. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, that's enjoyable and being like, okay, these actors that I love are getting some work. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the franchise, but I was uh, entertained for the most part. That's Pete good. Davidson does get that one really good joke where, where <laughs> Anthony Ramos is explaining, I have to go away with my work friends to save the world. And Pete Davidson goes... Work friends, you've been inside me. <laughs> Transformers Rise of the Beasts is in wide release, rated PG-13, the seventh installment in the film series. Flame and Hot is based on the story of Richard Montañez, who was a Frito-Lay janitor who then, uh, the story goes, and there's a lot of dispute over this, uh, that he originated Flame and Hot Cheetos, which became a food sensation. Eva Longoria makes her feature directorial debut. The screenplay's written by Louis Colick and Linda Yvette Chavez. Manuel, what did you think of Flamin' Hot? I think this is a thoroughly enjoyable um, biopic of sorts. I think uh, Longoria, who we all know from Desperate Housewives, I think it's this is an assured and solid debut for her as a filmmaker. It made me eager to see what she's going to do next. Um, I will say this is very much a boilerplate uh, kind of rags to riches or sort of like feels to exec grooms kind of story where we follow um, Richard as he's, you know, struggling to get out of a kind of life of crime and a life of gang life in this sort of um, world that in family that he's been born into and he wants to do more and he wants to sort of like really um, make good on his kids, make good on his wife. And so he's very entrepreneurial. And so we follow him in the in the film as he's trying to sort of figure out, you know, how do these machines work? How are you engineering this? How do you make Cheetos? How do you make Doritos? Uh, to the exasperation of all of his coworkers, we're like, what the what are you doing? We're just just cleaning the floors, just mop the floors. But um, so in a way, as a as a Chicano story and as a story of grit and a sort of this sort of American fairy tale dream, uh, it's giving you all the beats that you need. Uh, I didn't see it with a crowd, but I imagine it's sort of a crowd pleaser. It's re- it moves really fast. It has a great rhythm. Uh, Jesse Garcia's Montañez, I think, is it's he's charismatic, and you really want to see him succeed. As Montañez himself apparently yeah. is as well. Yes, yes. So you need a charismatic actor to play a charismatic person. What do you think of Flame and Hot, Amy? Yeah, I can really see why Eva Longoria wanted to direct Montañez's story, and I do feel for her that it was only after she optioned it that pieces came out. They're like, I don't know if he's exactly being. Strong. Frito-Lay has denied a lot of this in here. But I think in order to counterbalance the shaky bits of the story, which she does to sort of say as he said them, she builds the story outward. It becomes, I think, a really kind of skeptical, sturdy look at the American dream. She works in Reaganomics. She works in the politics of the Chicano movement. And I think unlike the other movies that we've had right now, like Air and Blackberry, they're looking at corporate stories. She, I think, really acknowledges that the corporate world is not set up for everyone to succeed equally. And so I think the cynicism in this makes the story even more aspirational in a way, because you see somebody working even harder against a world that's not set up for him. And watching this now, you know, in 2023, it made it more painful for me to acknowledge that it's kind of worse now. Even today, a janitor working at Frito-Lay is probably outsourced through a third party company and doesn't even get to stay around the machines and understand the system and work their way up. Um, And also... I can understand, though, why they'd want to put the focus on a hot Cheeto, even if it's not true. I mean, hot Cheetos, they are so, they are not lacking in acclaim. I was just at the L.A. County Fair a couple of weeks ago. 
I eat hot Cheetos on pot stickers. They're just everywhere. Oh so it's a sticky, sticky story that turns yeah. into at least a, a good crowd pleaser. We're talking about Flame and Hot, starring Jesse Garcia, directed by Eva Longoria. It's rated PG-13, and it's streaming on both Hulu and its sister platform, Disney+. Plus. Heroes of the Golden Masks is a U.S.-China co-production, an animated comedy adventure. Sean Patrick O'Reilly is the director and co-screenwriter. Charles, what did you think? Well, usually you expect a comedy adventure to be funny and exciting. And yeah, that this seems basic. Yeah, that's, this isn't uh, either, really. It's a lot of elements from Aladdin and the Kung Fu Panda movies uh, recycled not terribly effectively. There, the premise is there's this city in the past that's sort of more or less Chinese that's defended by these noble warriors who put on masks and get superpowers. Uh, one of them dies nobly fighting the nasty villain voiced by Ron Perlman. The mask will take them to, you know, to the next uh, heritor who is a contemporary kid who's an orphan living on the streets of Chicago, a very underpopulated Chicago rather than do a lot of, you know, crowd scenes, uh, who's a street rat and you see him picking pockets and stealing, except that's the opening of Aladdin, but Aladdin, they're very careful to make him sympathetic and this kid is not. He's also tens of thousands of dollars in debt somehow to the mob, which is headed by uh, one Rizzoli, voiced by Christopher Plummer doing an Italian accent, which is probably the most humiliating final role for an actor since Orson Welles was in the GoBots movie decades ago. You had to uh, bring that up. Yeah, I had to sit through it. Um, so you have this, of course, ultimately the street rat turns into the good guy. He lives up to be a hero. They talk your ears off through the entire movie with the kind of dialogue of, I have a plan. Do you want to know what my plan is? I'll tell you what my plan is. Uh, at which point you're not interested in the plan. So, um, no. All right. <laughs> Heroes of the Golden Mass. It's based on John Wilson's 2018 young adult novel. Sean Patrick O'Reilly directed it. Uh, it was co-written by O'Reilly with a number of other writers. The film is on screen at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. It's also available on demand for home viewing. Uh, when we continue, we'll find out about the war drama Persian Lessons, The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster which is a horror fantasy film, and Dali Land, uh, set uh, back uh, in New York City in the early 1970s with an aging Salvador Dali at the center of that film. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. More to come in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LA is 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Charles Solomon, Manuel Betancourt, and Amy Nicholson. Next up is Persian Lessons, uh, which is a war drama. It stars Nashul Perez Biscayart. Uh, the film is directed by Vadim Perlman. Manuel, what did you think of Persian Lessons? I, I'm mixed on this because I, I, ended up finding it a lot more engaging than I thought I would. It has a fantastic ending. Like the final, it has a gut punch of an ending, which I think made me rethink the movie a little bit. But this is very modeling. It sort of follows this young Jewish man who's about to be shot. And in a sort of a moment of sort of chance, he leads his Nazi, um, uh, the Nazi soldiers who are going to shoot him to think that he's Persian. And they're looking for a Persian guy because their commander wants to learn Farsi. And so, but they think he's lying and they're like, of course, we're going to, we'll take you to the commander and then we'll be in his good graces because we'll, we'll either have found you someone who can teach you Farsi or we'll have found some uh, Jew that we can then um, shoot for sports. He ends up figuring out a way to keep the ruse going for a long, long time, for months and months on end at this concentration camp and finding himself favored by the commander. And they sort of build this um, rapport it's a little maudlin overall. It's a little sentimental. I think it, it sort of works through a lot of well-worn tropes and a lot of well-worn um, sort of ideas about what we think of a Holocaust film. You know, this idea of like imbuing these victims with a humanity that I think a, a lot of us can, can already sort of agree on. I think the the thing that really sells it or sold it for me is the central performance by Nahuel Perez Vizcaya, uh, who is... I'm going to sound like a broken record today. Like he is really, like he commands the screen. Like he has such an expressive face. And so even when he's trying to figure out how to, how to con this commander into thinking that he's actually teaching him Farsi when he knows one word in Farsi is kind of exciting. And sort of you're constantly drawn in by his expressive eyes, by his physicality. Ultimately, I think you eventually sort of figure out like where the story is going. And it does have one final sort of gut punch of an ending. I don't know if that was holy soul on it as a whole. Persian Lessons, Amy. Yeah, I was thinking as I started this film, what are we going to do to make another concentration camp movie come in and have an emotional heft and a new dimension? Because we have so many strong ones already that have been made. And this one, yeah, it took a little bit to warm its way into me. And once it did, I was actually very happy that it did. This whole element of of this young man trying to pretend that he is somebody named Reza and inventing a language on the fly knowing that his life and death depends on it. This idea of just like every precious minute is just another minute that you're alive. You're stalling for time. And it's structured in a way that becomes very tense. Every day he has to figure out how to teach this guy new less, new words that he's got to create from somewhere. And it's an interesting tone in this film. You know, the director kind of, he's willing to reveal that this commandant, um, who's played by Lars Eidinger, has his own human layers. And the human layers he reveals in this commandant 
almost sap a lot of the power from the Nazi party in this film in a way that I found really valuable to see. You know, there's there's bits of it where the tone almost feels like it it could be a comedy if it wasn't so solemnly shot with dark shadows. And these minions yeah. that Manuel was referring to who really want to figure out how to reveal Reza's scheme, they're almost structured like the villains in a high school comedy or like a workplace <laughs> comedy. They're, there's love <laughs> triangles and they're always sniping at each other. And by making them seem so petty... The film does really great work to sap a lot of authority from these characters. And I found the questions it was raising actually really interesting. You have to do a lot of the thinking yourself to kind of pull out the director because he doesn't want to explain everything to you. But it's, you know, about the perceived value of a human life, about the inability to communicate in an or in, in these extraordinary ways. It's it's really a fight about who defines words and reality and the power of gossip and language. I found myself at times being like, I wish I knew something about this character before he showed up here. This, the film really only takes place in this world. You know nothing about him other than his mechanics to survive. But yet, at the end, I was like, good, you have found a new way into this story. And I really appreciate having seen this one. Persian Lessons is the film starring Nawel Perez Biscayar. Uh, the film is directed by Vadim Perlman. Uh, Ilja Zofin is the screenwriter. The movie's unrated and it's multilingual in German, Farsi, and French with English subtitles. Persian Lessons is showing at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster is a horror fantasy starring Leah De Leon Hayes. It's written and directed by Bomani J. Story. Amy, what did you think? Yeah, this is a modern Frankenstein story where the evil doctor is actually just a teenage girl in a rough neighborhood trying her best. She's seen a lot of violence. She's lost her mom to violence. She's lost her brother to violence. This violence is now throwing her dad kind of off the rails, and she's thinking... Her theory is death is a disease and I must cure it. She's a high school girl, very smart in the sciences, builds a lab and tries to figure out if she can bring people back to life. This first part of the story is actually really great. Uh, the actress um, Leia de Leon Hayes is playing the girl, Vicaria, uh, and her character is funny, stubborn, prickly. She's not trying to be liked that much by everybody, you know, and she becomes a really credible mad scientist in a story where you are buying that there's a laboratory in this crowded neighborhood that nobody is discovering. Um... I think this is a really promising debut. Like, the way that it's shot is great. The camera work is very smart. It uses special effects sparingly, but in that old-school way where you're like, oh, blue lightning, that 80s-style blue lightning. Um, there is a monster, of course. There's no monster POV, so it doesn't take that tick of a Frankenstein story. But it makes you use your imagination to see how it was designed. Because it is so good, I got very disappointed when it loses a lot of steam at the end and just becomes, you know, chase, 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 scream, scream, scream. It ends... Very strong in the last minute, though, so I'll give it that. The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster is unrated. It's in select theaters and available later this month on demand for home viewing. Dali Land uh, is based on uh, an event that actually happened in the life of Salvador Dali back in 1973. It stars Ben Kingsley and Barbara Sukova. Uh, Mary Heron is the director. John Walsh wrote the screenplay. Manuel, you Please start us on Dali Land. Sure. Um, right. So we're transported back to 1973 when uh, Dali is tasked with uh, putting up a, a gallery showing, and he's a little distracted by young and beautiful women and young and beautiful men and the life in New York. Uh, and his wife, Gala, just really wants him to sit down and actually paint something because they need the money. Uh, and so this young assistant uh, is tasked with getting him to work, uh, which, of course, is a... 
Herculean task that he sort of struggles with. Um, so we're getting this sort of late in life uh, Dali, and he's sort of struggling with what it means, what kind of ambition, artistic ambition does he have right now? Where does he fit into the art world in the 1970s? Um, I found myself a little, I will say bored. This is kind of, I found it a very listless film. Um, when you have a character like Salvador Dali I'm, and, a, and, a, and a title like Dalila, and I'm, I'm expecting a lot. And instead, yeah, it's visually, sort of, you're expecting, visually expecting a lot. A lot. And instead, it's so flat. It's very mundane looking. Uh, we have a lot of like medium shots. This person speaks, this other person speaks. Um, and you, I don't found, I didn't find that I had, that the film had a grasp on the kind of commentary we wanted to make on Dali the artist, Dali the man, Dali the womanizer, Dali the crazed genius who uh, may be spying on you when you're having sex with someone at a party uh it has a lot of it's really unerotic despite how much it focuses on sex and um sort of these relationships um i found that kingsley uh and sokoa are trying their best but uh i don't know these outsides personalities are sort of hard to capture and there's just no pov for them to sort of find their ground great actors too it's unfortunate we're talking about dali land amy yeah the best part about it is just sort of stepping back from this movie and thinking it is true that we go on this arc with geniuses where there's sometimes a stretch before they die where we say, oh, they're not geniuses anymore. And then we reanoint them geniuses after their death. So this is in that period of Dali's life where everybody's kind of finding his shtick exhausting. And there's this kind of interplay where Dali is wandering around by Ben Kingsley's Dali just saying things like, I'm going to build the largest physical male member in the world. And everybody's like nodding with reverence. And you're like, are they being serious right now? Is he being serious right now? In this idea of who we treat as though they're they're intellectual gods and sucking up to them and nodding along to them and kind of buying into their shtick is interesting because it happens in these rooms where there's parties and champagne and then it does not happen very much in the rest of the world where serious people get to examine them. So I liked all that, this moment, this idea of a codependent relationship between Dali and Gala that's really run its course and yet you don't know where anybody can go from here. Again, yeah, I agree. Like you're expecting more visual wow and wonder than this has. Instead, it does something really curious. You get these flashback scenes to young Dali, you know, where he's played by um, the actor Ezra Miller. And these scenes, I think, are supposed to translate a time when like him and his relationship with Gala was fresh. But instead, they're just done with this candlelit staginess, like physical memories where older Dali is able to walk through them. And it just feels dull. You don't feel this idea of an arc of life that went from possibilities to stale. Well, and and it's too bad because I remember in that era, and I was really young, but he would come on talk shows and Dolly. He was a that is the best part. The film opens. The film opens with one of those game show appearances, and is literally the best part. Yeah, Yeah. what's my line? He was also on Dick Cavett along with Lillian Gish and brought an (laughs) anteater with him. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, you know, even if he wasn't painting that much, then he was such an engaging personality. It's unfortunate the film either can't do visually like you were talking about, Manuel, or doesn't give you sort of the dynamism of of who he was as a person, along with all the baggage you brought up as well. That could have made a really great film. Yeah, the one scene that I think actually really does work is you see uh, a moment where Dali and Gala are preparing for a party and you watch them make themselves up in the mirror, turn themselves into these caricatures that they feel like they need to do to perform. Oh, that's cool. That's That's really cool. That scene is great. Yeah, Yeah, 
We're talking about Dali Land, uh, Mary Heron, the director, John Walsh, the screenwriter. It's based on uh, this period of Salvador Dali's life, 1973. Ben Kingsley, Barbara Sukova, star in the film, which is unrated, and it's at the landmark New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. Coming up, the stand-up comedy on Netflix of Amy Schumer, Emergency Contact. We'll also find out about the historical uh, drama horror film Brooklyn. 45. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price. After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Manuel Betancourt, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. Up next is the Netflix streaming stand-up comedy special Amy Schumer, Emergency Contact, and Schumer directed herself in the comedy special Manuel. Yeah, so uh, this is Amy Schumer, who people will uh, remember from her previous uh, specials and from Inside Amy Schumer, the the Peabody Award-winning comedy sketch show that she um, used to have. Uh, Right here, she's beginning with, you know, she's now a mom, she's now married, she's entered her 40s, she won't wear heels, her body is changing, and a lot of the humor really comes from sort of this this changing world and like now she can't be a party girl or maybe she's still a party girl but now her body sort of won't let her be as as much of a party girl as she used to uh and sort of this this crap this clashing of her youthful energy and her irreverence sort of coming to terms with a body and a life that won't really allow her to do that is where a lot of the comedy comes from um if you're a fan of schumer this is this hits all the sweet spots it's really enjoyable um she has a killer Alec Baldwin joke, um, <laughs> pun intended, uh, <laughs> uh, and a lot of great sort of like observational moments about sort of what it means to be a sort of an, an aging or geriatric millennial uh, right now. So you'll find, you know, jokes about melatonin and Ozempic and fillers. And if that is the kind of humor that you gravitate towards, she is going to deliver. She is really well assured on stage like she's one of those comedians that you know you're in great hands uh and she really does have a flair for sort of how to deliver the jokes and then find how to capture them on camera like it's really dynamic you don't really feel like she's just like um packed it in fact she constantly is directing she's like i want this let, let me get me get me in profile oh, show, show my nose now so let's she's... i want to get my legs and did you catch that and she's talking directly at the cameraman uh which i found what like added a sense that we were actually there even if we weren't in the audience 
We're talking about Amy Schumer, Emergency Contact, her latest stand-up comedy uh, streaming on Netflix starting next Tuesday. It's unrated, but for adults, we can be assured. Uh, Brooklyn 45, a horror film with a historical theme, and Ramsey Ron E. Rains star in it. Uh, Ted Gagan is the writer-director. Amy, what do you think of Brooklyn 45? I like the script of Brooklyn 45 a lot. In execution, it's a little stagey, but it is this one-room horror drama with this ensemble of, of people who are playing veterans, veterans from World War II right when the war has ended. They're all a little older and grizzled. They're like colonels and majors and such like that. And they meet at a lieutenant colonel's brownstone. Uh, he's played by Larry Fessenden. A few months after the war ended, the lieutenant colonel's in a bad way. His wife has died by suicide, and he's like, let's do a seance. I need to know if she's in a better place. And these are all characters who have seen death and pain, you know, and they're not from a generation who's really able to talk about it. And he really convinces them to do it. And then, of course, brutal things start to happen and everybody starts screaming at each other. And I don't really even want to hint about what comes next because I found this to have really good veers that I respected a lot, you know, as they reveal things from the war, throw things from the war at each other. And it's also a, a very willing to get gnarly at the end with some gore. But, it, it, you know, performance-wise, it is just sort of a little bright, a little cartoonish. I feel like I would love to see this at a theater. I would love to sit in a dark room and watch this unfold in front of me there. That, at least right now, is not an option. Brooklyn 45 is streaming on two services, Shudder, which is dedicated to horror, of course, and AMC+. Written and directed by Ked Gagan, it's unrated. The documentary Americond is directed by Sean Claffey. Charles? I found this a very frustrating film because I agreed with pretty much everything it was saying, but it didn't say it terribly well. It's about how the middle class has basically been shafted over the last couple of decades and is diminishing and diminishing, but it lacks a focus and a structure. You start out with uh, a very charismatic black man who's trying to organize... Uh, uh, Amazon warehouse workers, but then it's about homelessness. Then it's about the price of cost of rent. Then it's about independent contractors. Then it's about the Koch brothers. Then it's about uh, the Federalist Society. Then it's about court decisions. Then it's about, again, if this material had been better organized or better focused, I think they could have made their point more effectively. And they don't deal with, in the sections they talk about politics, well, how did Republicans get people to vote against their own economic interests that made so much of the situation they're describing possible? So well-intentioned, good ideas, some good footage, but it just doesn't come together as a film. Americond, Sean Claffey, the director. It's unrated. It's at the Lemley Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Lynch slash Oz is a documentary that looks at the Wizard of Oz and its influence on David Lynch. The film is directed by Alexander O. Philippe Manuel. I think documentary is a little bit of a misnomer because I think it's a, a ser- it's a series of video essays that are a sort of brought together under this this rubric of understanding the well-documented obsession that David Lynch, the director of Twin Peaks and Wild at Heart and Mulholland Drive, has with Victor Fleming's 1939 
classic, uh, including one by our very own Amy Nicholson. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) But also you have, you know, segments um, voiced and narrated by John Waters and Karen Kusama. And those are the ones that I that I really found uh, really fascinating because they're trying to sort of tease out, you know, what did what does it mean to think of this Lynchian world to have been born out of an obsession with Dorothy and the Wicked Witch of the West and Kansas and going back home. And one of the things that the the film does is uses a lot of visual juxtaposition, showing like, look, there's this moment from Twin Peaks that's exactly like Dorothy. There's this moment like Well in Heart that's like like this, and over and over and over again, to the point where it it, it ends up being a little bit repetitive. Stylistically, if we're not seeing the same images, but we're seeing the same kind of juxtaposition. Uh, and so I think Lynch fans and Wizard of Oz fans and cinephiles will find a lot to really enjoy. There are some really fascinating discussions about, uh, you know, what John Waters himself has taken from The Wizard of Oz when you think, you know, nothing in Waters' filmography would really think make you think that, I like, don't Dorothy. Know, divine Dorothy, maybe. Right, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think it's the same thing with Lynch. It feels so such an odd piece and yet as soon as you start teasing it apart it's there everywhere and this is the thing that the documentary uh sort of does does really well uh so there are a lot of moments that are really gratifying and sort of as a as a student of film uh i was really engaged to see and happy to see but in others i found myself sort of a little bit bored and wanted yeah. a little bit more amy you have any share about being part of this film <laughs> <laughs> she was the glenn to the good <laughs> well I, I i have the opening segment where i talk a lot about the wizard of oz in particular and its place in america and its place you know i, I would think for like young lynch I get to pull back the curtain on that to use a metaphor that both of them use visually. Uh, yeah, I feel like I can't review this one, but I can at least say that um, I will be at Vidiots with oh, Alexander, with Karen, with Rodney Asher, doing a Q&A on Sunday at 4 o'clock. We're going to show the, the new Vidiots in the Eagle Rock. Hey. It's all yeah. very exciting. Oh, everybody go to the new Yeah, Vidiots. on Eagle Rock Boulevard. Yeah, so that's terrific. Lynch slash Oz uh, is the film. It's directed by Alexander O. Philippe and unrated. The Secret Kingdom is a family adventure starring uh, Sam Everingham and Alila Brown. It's written and directed by Matt Drummond. Uh, Manuel, we have only a minute, but a quick review of this. Only a minute. We began with a movie that had really uh, impressive, but also kind of muddy CGI, and we end with a film that has kind of muddy and horrible CGI, (laughs) which is about these two um, siblings who find that there is a secret kingdom underneath their house, their bed, and there are pangolins and double-headed turtles and lots of riddles to be solved so that an unnamed villain may not you sort of get the the, the gist okay, of it. Yeah. Uh, they learn a lot about themselves. Uh, there's a kind of a, a twist at the end, which obviously I won't spoil. Um, as a kid's adventure film, I don't know what kind of kid would sit through this. <laughs> but I also don't spend a lot of time with kids, so maybe they will. Um, but I found it uh, rather boring and really not particularly exciting to look at. The Secret Kingdom, Matt Drummond, the writer-director. It's Australian and rated PG at Lendley's Glendale Theatre in Glendale. For our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantle. We're going to be continuing momentarily. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there.